Chuck. App Harvest. Oh, wait, did Ab- I spoil it? App Harvest is filing for bankruptcy. Can you explain what App Harvest is? Because I don't think we've ever really talked about it on this show. And truthfully, I don't know a ton about it. Yeah. So they're like a they're like a really big um they're trying to do large scale farming in Appalachia. So they say that they're like producing all of these hothouse tomatoes and all of these things like for a better world. And so um, they're trying to use less water and they're like a, a um, an environmental organization. But in the process of doing all of this good work with regard to climate change, they have completely fucked over a lot of people in Appalachia and the work that people do on smaller scale operations. They've put family farms out of business. They have not been good neighbors. Um, They have participated in what we're going to talk about later on in this show, uh, the idea that... um, Kentucky and uh, Appalachia, Central Appalachia in particular, brings about these disasters on themselves because of who they vote for. Um, and they they partake in the in the discussion around how, oh, well, you know, they are voting against their best interests and, and these stupid people. So a lot of like understandably, <laughs> and I'm among these folks, a lot of people really don't like App Harvest. Um and even though they're trying to do good work, they're doing it in a really shitty, mean way. And they're not in like a traditionally kind of neighborly centric community building type of way. So they are filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And I am I bad for laughing? I don't know. Uh, maybe. I just Googled them and pulled up an article from literally looks like four days ago, maybe five and the title of it is, and, and reminder, this came out today. We're recording this on Monday, July 24th. And they filed for Chapter 11, I think, today, or at least the story broke today. Four days ago, headline, App Harvest defends cash payouts to executives as part of turnaround plan. Despite running short on cash, the Kentucky ag, ag tech startup is making nearly $2.5 million in special payments to its top four executives. That seems like uh, not the most effective way to avoid bankruptcy in my mind, but I'm not a I'm not a finance guy. So well, I, I mean, what could you know? You are but a lowly Appalachian person mm-hmm. who votes against their best interests and doesn't really know any better for themselves and needs people with outside the region experience to come in and show us a better way. So, Chuck, who's to blame you for being so stupid? Well, uh, what I will say in my own defense is that I think everything J.D. Vance touches dies. And this is another example of it because he was on their board up until 2021 when he had to resign due to some problematic tweets. Mm. Uh, but this does kind of reek of his doing, you know, putting all this. It's a grift. Money yeah, it's it's his classic. It's It's his classic grift. I don't know. I really really want to see more come out about this and we will definitely be doing a full segment on app harvest and like kind of their history of uh bad behavior in the region um and maybe we will dance on their grave just a little bit but i'm at this point (laughs) i think it's really funny the but i am sorry for all the people who are going to lose their jobs that sucks 
the it's it's sad because it it's like at its essence it seemed like it was a really cool idea but the execute yeah it's a cool idea with really bad execution yeah. that happened in a way that just was like not it wasn't good for the surrounding area where app harvest located itself they were part of their whole pitch was like oh we're gonna bring kentucky out of the dark ages um and instead of doing that they pushed out local farmers they said that people from kentucky were stupid mm, and now now yeah now they're like kind of paying the piper on it so well i mean they already paid their executives so there's not many people left to pay except for the piper at this point hey oh sorry had so to. chuck this week a lot happened in uh in social media land as always but one of the best things that happened in social media land was one of the one of the one of the tweets that kind of you pioneered <laughs> uh and it had to do with a certain country music star can you tell me what's going on with jason aldean so, oh God, and they've already changed Twitter over. It's now X. It's now X. Is it? It's already there? The logo is already on the website. Jason Aldean trying to be Toby Keith. Not quite there yet. Doesn't doesn't inspire that rah, rah, America, fuck you quite yet, but he's getting there. He had this new song, which I think we talked about last week, called Try This in a Small Town. I think the song is titled Try That in a Small Town. Got it, got it. Okay, well, so... Jason Aldean's doing this thing where he's trying to really capture that right-wing, very kind of conservative country music listener. There's a demographic there, and there's money to be made there, and he's leaning in really hard to it. Uh, but here's the thing. He got backlash because of the content of the song. I think we went through the lyrics in last week's episode. And uh, so, like, go look it up if you don't remember. But basically, here here's a little bit of a rundown. So... Apparently, according to Jason Isbell, if he is to be believed, which I believe Jason Isbell, uh, Jason Aldean didn't write this song. He had somebody else write it, which that's fine. Like, I I don't have a problem with that. Songwriters are great, and I don't think that there's any any issue with that. But damages your credibility when you're trying to, like, hinge your personality on a song that somebody else wrote that you can't even relate to because you're not from a small town, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, and I also want to state at the outset here, I want to be very clear on this because there's a lot of liberals who are super fucking annoying and a lot of leftists on Twitter, they're like, cancel, cancel, cancel. I don't think Jason Aldean should be canceled. I don't think this song should be canceled. Because all it's going to do is make the song more popular to the audience it's already targeted at. And that's exactly what's happened. I mean, it's shot up in the charts. I, so I don't think that CMT should have canceled it or whatever the hell they did with it. I, I think it's dumb. I think that's stupid. But here's the thing. Because I, I canceling is... I'm not going to go into a whole rant about it. But I think it's just silly and doesn't serve any purpose. just makes you know, us look weak and like we can't handle things like this, which we can. The the And especially when it comes to songwriting and songs in general, because it's like, it's art and you want to give a lot of leeway to art and be generous with that. Also calling this art is like a little of a stretch. I'm putting it into the broad category. I'm sorry. No, no, just... Oh, you don't think sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool? Well, act a fool if you like. That's not art. I don't know what is. Again, I don't believe in cancellation. I think it's stupid and petty. Uh, and it's not what people say, oh, it's accountability. Not not 
most of the time, really. Uh, and most of the time, these people just end up finding a bigger grift on the left or the right, depending on who it is. So the thing, though, that came out of this that I think was really special and good is that we had some fun with it on our social medians. So this started because uh, Mark Ag, who is the co-host of Weekly Skews with Trey Crowder on the uh, Skewniverse and well-read lore, so check that out if you haven't already, he said, Jason Aldean's not even from a small town. He never had to eat potted meat because the grocery store was a 16-mile walk away. This is stolen valor. And uh, Matt Excellent Hildur- use and re- actually excellent stolen valor on the phrase stolen valor. Totally agree. And uh, Matt Hildreth, who you'll recall was on our show for rural organizing a couple weeks back, quoted that tweet and said, Jason Aldean never rented movies from the gas station. Another fact. And I thought, you know, why don't we make this a thing? Because this all starts because Jason Aldean is from Macon, Georgia, which is, has a population of like 150,000 people. And then he, as I mentioned last week, lives in, lived in Nashville, Tennessee in like a $15 million mansion. Not exactly a small town. Uh, who's to say? I don't know. Maybe us. But anyway, we, we had some fun with it. And uh, so we started out with Jason Aldean never was taught sex ed by the organist at his church, which I quoted... And it's based on a true story, which I think I've mentioned in this show before, because it was my organist. His name was Alan, and he was also part of the health department, apparently, because uh, organist is a part-time gig. Yeah, so then that spawned a ton of replies. We also put in a, posted another one that said, Jason Aldean never witnessed a man field dress a deer inside a gas station that doubled as a black cat fireworks outlet, which I was particularly proud of, also based on a true story. Um, do you have any particular favorites? I've got a few, but uh, I wanted to see if you had any. I have a really good one. So Tarif on Instagram said, Jason Aldean never wore plastic bread sacks under his socks on his feet and hands to go out and play in the snow. That's a classic. I definitely did that. I will give a shout out to uh, Whitney, our our pal Appalachian Forager, who made a video. That was her first viral video was of her getting ready to go out in the snow. And she puts um, she has a bread bag on one. She doesn't have two bread bags. So what do we put on the other foot if we don't have two bread bags, y'all? A Walmart bag. And that's what Whitney did. And so I feel like that is very, very small town. Rural resourcefulness. You got to love it. Uh, one of my favorites was... Uh, one of the you know best authors in America, Sarah Smarsh, who said, and she, in context, she comes from a farming background in rural Kansas. She said, Jason Aldean, and I have to believe that this is probably based on a true story. Jason Aldean never got a call from his best friend regretting to inform him that his boyfriend Preston was seen cutting wheat with another girl in the combine cab. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's got to be based on something real. I love it. I love it. Justin B. Green says, Jason Aldean didn't learn to square dance in PE. And it shows. Uh, Coda Brooke on Instagram said, Jason Aldean never had school canceled because the future farmers of America's Rocky Mountain oyster fry gave the entire town food poisoning while also making the whole school smell like cow balls. (laughs) That's a great one wild m taylor the artist says jason aldean never had to drive your tractor to school day and everyone who did had to leave their houses at 4 a.m to make it to school on time well i i love it 
Uh, Trevor Freeman won. Jason Aldean never had 20 varieties of mom's secret recipe deer sausage balls to choose from in his elementary school Thanksgiving class class feast. <laughs> sounds That's like an awesome. awesome school to go to. Uh, this was actually one of my favorite ones because it was a typo. Steffi Maylinda said, Jason Aldean never asked his 17 months pregnant wife to help load up and field dress a buck deer. To which I replied, he also never asked her why it's been 17 months and she still hasn't had the baby yet. That's brilliant. <laughs> Holler Gone Wild says, Jason LD never had to climb the hill behind his house to get cell service. I had to do that. Uh, it's a, that's that's a very real problem even to this <laughs> so day. so real. Uh, Jason Aldean, this is from Westbrook Whitney, Jason Aldean never, never grew up in a town where once a year the grand champion market lamb gets to ride in a parade on a float pulled by a tractor. <laughs> this one is also from Westbrook Whitney. Uh, I, she must have had a field day. Jason Aldean never went to high school where there was a policy that you wouldn't get in trouble if a knife was less than three inches long and found in your possession because so many kids caught the bus straight from the fields after cutting hay bales for the livestock. I thought that was going to end with Jason Aldean never went to high school. <laughs> Which that would have been really funny. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's good. This one's the farmer's daughter, D-O-T-T-E-R. This one, they had some pretty good ones. Jason Aldean doesn't know how to smash a beer can on his forehead so it sticks. He will never be a beer in a corn. And Jason Aldean didn't learn taxidermy in high school biology, and he definitely didn't graduate with a taxidermied weasel wearing a tiny graduation cap. That's a great one. Brilliant. Oh, man. I like this one. This is from KRKJV. This is Jason Aldean isn't from a town where the mortician also serves as mayor and owns the only sit-down restaurant. That is so real. <laughs> it's so real. God, there's some just really good ones. Yeah, this is an amazing... This was such a, such a good thing to start i mean it really is it really is amazing uh this one actually uh makes me kind of sad because it's probably true matt walker on instagram said jason aldean has never done all these things but i guarantee he is reading these comments for new song lyrics (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect oh man this is from Carl Smakula, Jason LD never went to school smelling like ramps because he'd eaten them with every meal for the last week. <laughs> That's so true. Jason Aldean, this is where West wanders. Jason Aldean has never went to school or church with kids who lived in places called Bug Hole, Stinking Creek, and Greasy Holler. <laughs> It's true. It's true. I literally, there's a place that we used to go hang out called Trash Can Falls. <laughs> That is anyone, anyone from App State, anybody who's been to App State has been to Trash Can Falls. Why is it called Trash Can Falls? I have no idea, actually. Um, it wasn't dirty or anything when I went. We we need we need more intel. Anybody that knows anything about Trash Can Falls, hit us up. Jason Aldean didn't have the Monday after Thanksgiving off school because everybody was out hunting deer. That that one was said quite a bit, and it's very real. Like our, we had I don't I can't remember if it was a whole week off for I don't think it was a whole week for deer hunting for deer season when it began, but I 
I believe that it was definitely an excused absence, no matter what. Speaking of Thanksgiving, we had like traditional Thanksgiving, and I'm giving quotation marks in that because you know that it actually isn't anything like that. Um, historically speaking. But when I was in elementary school, we had traditional Thanksgiving where people would bring in like wild meats. And like everybody had tried bear meat. Everybody tried like, you know, they had somebody who shot a turkey and they had, we had venison. We had all of like the wild meats. And that, that was an actual thing that happened to me. I love that. There's oh, I forgot the ones we actually shared in our our actual post. Uh, this one was from Ned's Nilla Wafers. Jason Aldean never rode in his grandpa's Chevy S10 to the Hardee's twenty minutes away to get sausage and cinnamon raisin biscuits before the coupons expire. Hey, you cannot let those coupons expire, folks. No, that is the first real first rule of of being rural is that your mom was a coupon clipper, and you couldn't let them expire. She had them filed. You know, filed in her little in her Rolodex mm-hmm. under when they expire. Yep. Yeah, my mom always said her favorite four letter word was not fuck or shit. It was sale. Ooh, it's a true story. That's a good saying. It is. It is. Uh, this one, American woman, West Virginia, proud on on Twitter. Jason Aldean never went to a high school where the where half the class was excused to go round up someone's cows that got loose. that's a good one and uh jeremy ratliff jason aldean didn't rent his tux for prom from a flower shop slash tanning bed place slash video rental store very true is so true uh just a couple more and then we'll move on this is just too this is too good miss atomic bomb says jason aldean's wife doesn't have any state fair ribbons (laughs) god that's a diss it's Damn. such a good one. So that is, good. That's just mean, but it's good. I love it. Uh, this one, username at person.name, har har. Uh, Jason Aldean never chased grasshoppers in a mom and pop gas station across the road from the boat ramp because Randy was too drunk and knocked the stand over. Fucking Randy, man. Fucking Randy. <laughs> this person also said, and I have to assume that the, Randy was also involved in this one, Jason Aldean never chased a greased pig at a demolition derby only to get kicked in the face by a booted cowboy as he caught the pig. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. I have to give props to a couple of heroes in the comments. Mm-hmm. Um, a, Tiffany B., and China the Defiant. I love both of these people because some Tiffany said, has somebody tagged Jason Aldean yet? He's getting torn apart in these comments and I want him to actually see it. And then China actually puts him in the comments. And I I really hope that he read these. Like, I know that you said he's getting more and more of the like you know uh, the lyrics for future songs but i i just want him to feel so bad <laughs> that was good that's that's some good content that 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 serves as our question of the week really um great content love to see it if you have any other ones share them with us we'll share them on the show and uh let's real quickly get into announcements about patreon Patreon.com slash Latcha. We're going to be back to posting soon. I'm trying to get the internet fixed here so I can upload some videos. So apologies that we haven't been posting as regularly as 
we normally do on there. But it's the way that we finance this beautiful show that we have and all the things that we do on it. You can join for as little as a dollar a month. And if you join, Callie will write a custom limerick just for you. And we're getting caught up on some because we've had some people join the past few weeks. Callie, we've got two today. Who are they? Oh, I am so excited to welcome Megan and Katie. So first up, Megan, raise a glass to Megan. Her presence will send you straight to heaven. If you mm. think that means you'll be dead, that's not what I said. She's not going to bring Armageddon. Oh, whoa. Some liturgical power to this one. My goodness. Yes. Yeah. We got philosophical in there. Yeah, Next up is Katie. Three cheers for our friend Katie. She's a lovely Appalachian lady. Went to school with Callie. They were dorm room pallies. Hello from West Virginia, matey. Ha! <laughs> that was good. That was good. A little, little bit of roommate love there. Yeah. Big John and I were roommates, so there you go. Fun, fun stuff. Don't know and that's where we owe we owe it all to that particular RA who set the room assignments. Thank you to that uh, lowly resident assistant who really just put it all on the line, hoping for the best, and it worked out. It did. It worked out for generations to come. Chuck, we have a new sponsor. Holy that shit. That I'm really, really excited about. Okay, lay it on me. This is news to me. It's not. <laughs> it's not, guys. Don't worry. It's not. I'm here. I'm cute. Red Rooster Coffee. I have been loving my red rooster coffee we talked about it for a long time on the show last week so if you want to know specific recommendations um from both of us we got goodie bags and everything go check out last show um but i love them for a number of reasons uh they they responsibly source all of their coffee they operate sustainably with biodegradable coffee bags locally printed uh water-based inks on all of their bags which i mean like that's just like going down you know into the fine detail of being responsible um they compost everything with organic farms they minimize their footprint by recycling and reusing within their facilities their family business they do their part to create a vibrant local community by hiring locally providing a living wage full health care benefits to their employees participating in their local community um and they opened a licensed on-site daycare specifically for their employees and their children in 2018 and this is what I really wanted. I wanted to start with all of that because it is really important to us that we support local Appalachian businesses that are doing better for their communities. So we talked about the coffee and how great it was last week. This week, I really want to talk about why we want to spark to partner with Red Rooster in the first place. And it's because of all of these reasons. They have amazing coffee. They're sustainably operating and they're doing the most for their employees. So I went to punpedia.org slash tag slash rooster so that I could come up with some good puns for this. So bear with me, Kelly, because I'm really winging it. But thanks for giving us a sneak beek. <laughs> So look no feather than Red Rooster Coffee. Callie, you really beaked my interest in, in this, and I don't want to foul this ad up by doing any more shitty puns. So henceforth, go on there, use Darko Dolly, D-O-L-L-Y, to get free shipping on your order. 
fuck shipping. We are an anti-shipping fee podcast, really. I mean, we always have been, as we've always said. So get out there. Don't be a party foul. Go and get you some Red Rooster coffee. Hawk some to your friends uh, before it becomes extinct like a dodo. Don't worry, it won't. They have plenty in supply. Let's let's get into it. This week, we were talking about this this interview, actually, that Barbara Kingsolver, author of many great books, including Demon Copperhead, which was part of our Appalachian Bookshelf Reading Club, book club, uh, is an interview she did with Ezra Klein for the New York Times called, basically, Do Urban Liberals Have It Wrong on Appalachia? It's a great interview. We'll link to it, but we wanted to discuss some of the broader points from it. Callie, your initial thoughts, your initial takeaways. Do you have an answer to the question, do urban liberals have it wrong about Appalachia? <laughs> um, well, I just want to start out by saying this is the as, Ezra Klein show is my favorite podcast. I religiously listen to it. Um, I'll get and roasted so, on here. Jesus. What? I mean, we're not your favorite podcast. Your, your own podcast. Is oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. I couldn't hear you. It's okay. Sorry. Yes. No. Uh, my Being second favorite jackass, podcast. It's fine. Um. I. I really love the way that Ezra approaches the intellectual side of of podcasting and and like kind of bridging the gap between high intellect and pop interest, um, which is something that I am really interested in myself. So I felt that number one, he was coming to this interview from a really empathetic place, which was something that I, I appreciated, um, from the outset. Uh, that's kind of the first element of this is that I liked the way that, that the approach was made from the podcast standpoint, from the interview standpoint, as far as, as, King Solver went, I felt like she was an incredible ambassador for our region. So not only was the the podcast in just really, really empathetic um, and approached from a way from a from an angle that was beneficial to both the listener as well as the region, I I felt that they really dove into some of the the problems that are so confounding to the rest of the country it's it's a they dove into things that i felt like we talk about all the time but that outside listeners and this is kind of what barbara was talking about that outside that outside folks who don't pay attention to appalachia on a daily basis on a weekly basis or even a monthly basis that it's they dove into those kind of tropes even within like literature and they dove into stereotypes and they dove into the actual affecting causes um of what's of of the the plights of Appalachia and so I've I've on the whole really really enjoyed the interview I agree I'm I sort of indifferent on Ezra Klein I haven't really listened to him a ton lately though to be honest with you um, I used to listen to him like on the weeds and stuff, and I think he was fine. Um, but I also just don't really listen to that kind of stuff all that much anymore. Uh, but this is a good interview because I think it was really honest and forthcoming. And uh, I mean, Ezra Klein read the book; he also really liked it, which I think was helpful just to like his interest level in this interview. Uh, it, and 
it, yeah, it was actually it was clear that he read it, that, that, like that it wasn't just that he had had his team read it. <laughs> it was pretty yeah. clear that he'd actually put in the time. And I was just really impressed with how Barbara Kingsolver was just able to articulate a lot of how we feel. Uh, not that I, I'm surprised. I, I just was like impressed because I mean, in Dean Copperhead is an incredible novel and I, I I wouldn't be surprised I actually think there's some hints that it might get turned into like a movie or a, a TV show or something uh it, it start it's a really really interesting interview because it starts out with like kind of her own personal journey of you know traveling the world landing in Arizona not feeling like she's got a home which we've talked about many times and uh it, it's just I think like one of the things that she got into especially about like like resentment of rural people and the history behind that of um, wanting to penalize rural people for their resourcefulness. Do you remember that part of the interview where she's talking about like the whiskey rebellion and things like that, where, <laughs> because uh, uh, a lot of what, what rural people did couldn't be taxed, like making their own whiskey, making their own whatever, what have you paying people under the table kind of thing. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting point. And I think there's also just a generally, I think the general tone of this is there's just a lot of misunderstanding and lack of communication between rural and urban people. And I would completely and totally agree with that, especially having been, having lived in both places. Yeah, I I agree. I think that it really did a good job, um, especially when later on in the interview, Ezra kind of pushes her on what... Uh, is what on what urban people think that rural people think about them, that it's not just this one way street where it is urban people looking down on rural people. They talk about how rural people often look down on city people and how that is it's made worse by the parties not talking about it. And so one of the final questions that he asks her is, um, is, is what do you think that rural people can learn from urbanites and i love that question because i think that it it's not often asked and the way that she approaches it with a, a take on diversity and a, a, diver, a diversity of perspectives and races cultures ethnicities even language um is something that i found to be really beautiful and what was so kind of I guess better for me about this interview than the book itself is that there was no, there were no trappings of a story we got, as we talked about in the podcast that we recorded with Kendra from Reed Appalachia, when this was in our book club, we talked about how there were moments in the book when Barbara Kingsolver seemed to come through the story and just have a monologue of her own personal self uh, like in her feelings in the text. And what I loved was that there was no, there was no kind of like story that she had to hide this under. This was just how she felt. And it was, it was just kind of this unabashed love for Appalachia. And, and it was a, a, a full hour of her discussing exactly what she meant by what she wrote in Demon Copperhead without the story. So it was straightforward her saying that so many of the wrongs that urban liberals think about Appalachia and, and rural places have been actually perpetrated on us by people in the cities. And there's not, it's not unwarranted that people are very, they question 
people in cities and their intentions and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the, the things that I really loved about the interview too, was that there was no, we didn't have to filter through anything else to hear what Barbara Kingsolver actually thought. I absolutely agree. And I, I'm thinking about this kind of out loud at the moment, but I think we really need to extend an invite sure. to have her on our show. Yeah. And I'm, I'm honestly I think she'd like, do it. I don't, I, I think it's just been something where she's a really big name. And, and I think especially during the time when Demon Copperhead was published and coming out, like she had a lot of uh, big interviews. But look, we're a big enough name. We can ask her. We can see what happens. Because uh, I'd love to talk to her. She's fascinating. I think one thing that she brought up that, well, it is obvious now that she mentioned it. But, and I, let me just backtrack. I feel this way a lot where things are brought up and it's, it should be very obvious, right? But like, I don't make that connection. A lot of people don't make the connection, but once you do, it's like, damn, that makes a lot of sense. She brought up something about the media. And I think like generally couched in terms of like distrust for media not feeling represented in like mainstream media. And she said, all major media organizations are located in cities. And that has something to do with it. And, she didn't necessarily say that has everything to do with it. That has, you know, like this amount of stuff to do with it, but it has something to do with it. And she's she's absolutely right. And there's, I I think that's why community news is a really, really big, important thing that has been underinvested in for a long time, but shouldn't be. And, and I think we're seeing like some change in that with with like independent newsrooms and nonprofit newsrooms. But I, I think that she makes a great point. And so when people, especially in rural areas are like distrustful of, CNN, of Fox, of MSNBC, of the New York Times, of the Washington Post, yada, yada. It's not just because they're headquartered in cities. There's a lot that goes into that. I'm not trying to paper over all that. But that has to have something to do with it because you don't have people that are embedded in your community that are talking about the the issues that you're facing. And and to his credit, Ezra Klein pointed out that the, the biggest, most read newspaper in, in, I think, California is the New York Times or in Los Angeles. I can't remember what he mentioned, but... And that is the case where a lot of times people don't feel represented by the media that they consume or that other people are consuming. And that definitely shapes a narrative. Yeah. I listened recently to an interview with A.G. Salzberger, who is the publisher of The New York Times. He's in his 30s. He's one of the youngest publishers of The New York Times. And he's kind of who has... um, gotten them back on their feet after they thought that there was just going to be this this big bubble burst of news um and he's the one who kind of made sure that news wasn't free um that that it is a commodity and it shouldn't be free and so he's the paywall guy anyway he um was speaking about how the new york times staff like none of them pretty much live in a in a rural area he said that it's it's next to no reporters in the new york times live in a rural area and, and that's uh, a problem they, yeah and that they are very overrepresented when it comes to um people who are non-religious um so they uh basically he was just saying that a lot of what rural folks see as representative of their communities which are the churches and the institutions in their communities that that often show up um and that that is community led churches uh it's people who are who don't have a, an education the new york times does not have a reporter on staff who was not college educated 
Um, and so those are things that tend to separate the urban liberal in quotation marks and the kind of rural church mouse. And I, I felt that just delineating it and just saying it in that way so plainly and clearly was honestly refreshing because it, to hear someone just say outright, like, yeah, our staff is not representative of the people who read our paper because the New York Times is the leading paper in the whole country. I mean, they are more read than most local papers in local towns. Um, they have more, and more so, resources, too. Yeah. And clicks like when you think about Facebook and people sharing articles, Twitter um, or X now, when you think about all of these, um, like when you think about all of that, you you the New York Times is getting uh, like in the in the dozens of millions of clicks a day. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we can't fight the the power in these urban monoliths you know like we can't we can't take that on by itself but having these types of conversations that bring rural people and their value to the forefront um whether it's this conversation that i heard with ag salzberger or this conversation with barbara kingsolver and ezra klein i think that simply bringing it out into the open as a known fact helps like oh Ezra Klein isn't just living in an ivory tower where he thinks that the only opinions that exist out there are those of urban liberals. You know, while logically maybe I knew that, it's great to hear him say out loud to Barbara Kingsolver that acknowledgement. And and I, I think that that's really important when you go about bridging that divide. Yeah, I I agree. I think like, I want to see them do something about it, though. Also, I, 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 I like that they're acknowledging that. I want to see them actually change that, like hire some people that are in rural areas, you know, have them not just be in bubble. Because you can't you can't effectively cover rural news, which is a very important part of a national newspaper. If you don't have people that are lit that are in those communities. And, and I think like there are some. Uh, some news organizations have done that, but not not enough. And uh, so I think that's important. But I think it's good that they're acknowledging that and acknowledging their blind spots. That's the first. That's a good first step for sure. I I wanted to pivot back to her interview because I wanted to read something that I think was really like really hit the nail on the head. Um, about this kind of goes back to the question of do urban liberals, uh, do urban liberals have it wrong about Appalachia? Uh, which I think that answer is more complicated than just a yes or no. I think it's definitely a yes for a lot of them, but not all of them. It's more nuanced than that. But I think by and large, there is a a big disconnect. One thing that she said, I'm reading from the transcript here. She's talking about shame, internalized shame about where she's from. And she said, it wasn't just in college. It was everywhere. Just about every time you speak with someone who is from outside of your region, she's from Appalachia, they make some remark like, you seem really educated for a Kentuckian, or more crudely, you're wearing shoes. Or more subtly, are, they, are there any people there you want to be friends with in MAGA country? 
And she said, how many people, well-meaning people, have asked me, how could I live there in the middle of nowhere? People, this is my everywhere. This is my everything. I live on a farm that grows food where water comes out of the mountain among trees that make oxygen. City folks are depending on us for a lot of things they routinely discount or make fun of, or I would also argue take for granted. And I think that that, that has been something that, I think more people have become cognizant of, but it's it's very true. Like the majority of people's food comes from rural areas, absolutely. Because like you can't exactly farm very effectively at a massive scale in, in New York City. Yeah, I and I really thought her point too about uh, in that same in that same breath was you know talking about um, how when we people think of rural people providing food, they think of these massive farming operations, like what we were talking about with app harvest, but she even brings out like the, the classic family farm when, with regard to both like giving people food and self-sufficiency. I, I mean, like think of the farmer's markets that people in cities enjoy. I mean, when I, when yeah. I was living in DC, there were farmer's markets that was like a whole outing. It was a day where you would take the kids and it was an educational experience for all of these city kids to go and see farms. And those are small family farms. Like the, you're not going to see app harvest at like a, a Washington DC farmer's market or these giant, like huge farming operations. So it's not even that these farmers don't even cross the paths of city folks. It's that, you know, like there's, there's this inherent lack of understanding of this, of the, of the reliance that people have on, on these farms from their food to also like the education aspect that I'm, that I'm talking about when it comes to farmers markets, because I can't tell you the number of people who were like, oh my gosh, yeah, I take my kids to the farmer's market so they can see where food comes from. Like that's a huge part of education when it comes to like kids living in cities, if you take them to the farmer's market and they've, they've never seen a farm and they talk to a farmer and there's like all of this labor going on from the farmer's side of it to help like not only feed people in cities, but educate their children as well. And I think that's a huge, that's a huge part of, of the value that farmers, especially Appalachian farmers bring to really urban areas. Yeah, and I mean, if you when you go to those farmers markets, I mean, oftentimes the farmers are, like you mentioned, dot from there. Like they're they're having to travel quite a distance just to, you know, be able to sell their food. It's an all day thing, like you mentioned, and so I, I think it's really important that like stuff like that gets acknowledged. But just in general, I think people. I don't know what it is, if it's the culture, if it's the, if it's social media, if it's a lot of different things that cause people to think in way more like easy to digest simplistic terms about things and just be able to capture an idea of a place in like a one sentence. But it's, it's really, it's really unfortunately harmful to people. And and it's just like intellectually dishonest to look at these places like, oh, it's just MAGA country or, oh, it's just a bunch of Republicans or a bunch of Democrats or liberals and like just a bunch of groomers, blah, 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 all that, and like not be able to appreciate the significance, the nuance of a place, and also the the value that it brings, not just to like life in general, but your life. Your life is made better 
by people from Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia and Virginia and all these places. Your life is made better. You're able to live because people are doing stuff for you. Yeah, this is so important. Um, One of the one of the points that Ezra brought up that I felt was really important to talk about um, when it comes to how urban folks feel about rural people there it was very this kind of poignant moment where he um is not just asking a question where he's giving his perspective and he says i'll be honest sometimes i think this grates on us city dwellers so i come from a people who over and over again were driven out of land i come from jews driven out by pogroms again and again off of land where they could have been self-sufficient and into cities into one city and then another city and then to another city part of my family comes to america by way of brazil another family comes by way of eastern europe and there's always been this tension i think broadly it particularly afflicts jews the sort of rootless cosmopolitan stereotype but then there's also this side thread in america of the city dwellers that aren't real americans they're not on the land what they do isn't real work and i think that that is so poignant And it doesn't just, I mean, he speaks in that moment for his people, Jewish people, but there have been many folks who've been driven out of rural areas into cities. um, And that can be black folks. That can be, that can be Jews. That can be, there are lots of, there were lots of uh, women who were driven out of rural areas and into cities, um, especially in the, in the Dust Bowl and, and things like that. And so I think that, that this point that he has of saying that what they do is not real because they're not working with their hands or doing anything like that, like that, that to me, I felt that maybe for the first time, like, in general this just the way that he said it that like they're not on the land what they do isn't real work and i think that that's so that can really impact a person if you think that you are looked down on for doing either intellectual work or white collar work um especially if your family has been driven out of rural places like jews have been and so that just hit me really hard and i felt like it was such an important point that that rural people should understand that just because someone is in a city doesn't mean that one they chose to be there in the first place or that their family chose to be there and two that they think that they're better lots of people are there because of whatever situation came up for their family historically yeah i think it's a good point and i'm glad that he mentioned it because i think there is some of that especially now where where labor and just the economy in general has changed so much since uh, even, you know, like our parents were our age, like generations in the past. And so it, 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 there is some of that level of resentment that's leveled at people in urban areas. And it, it's and it's often a hard thing to understand. Like, how how do you sit at a computer all day and quote unquote do work? I mean, I fe- I've even felt that about myself. So I, I totally get it. Uh and just about like where families come from and stuff. It, it, I think it comes back to like, yes, urban liberals have it wrong about Appalachia to some extent, like certain ones do not all of them. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Cause you know, I'm Mr. Mm, let's do the nuance making fun of my own takes here. Uh, but it, it's important to acknowledge that like, there's a lot of resentment and it goes both ways. It's, I, and I'm not trying to like paper over rural communities too. rural communities are, are, 
are bad about it as well, like people in rural communities, about casting shame and aspersions and assumptions on people and cities and entire states. What what have I always said on this show, Callie? Stop referring to places as red and blue states because they're more complicated than that. Yep. Damn it. Yeah. And that's all I have to I say mean, about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's really what this kind of comes down to is that everything, like, I mean, this is like always where we land and I know it's probably annoying to our listeners, but everything is nuanced and everything has has duality within it. And I... I just appreciate this conversation between two really smart people um, who are trying to be empathetic toward one another, toward each other's lives and uh, trying to share what's great about. I mean, Barbara Kingsolver so, so clearly wanted to share what was great about Appalachia. I love that. And I appreciate her for every moment that she spent trying to really show the beauty and she did she i i really like i like this interview more than i like demon copperhead like <laughs> i mean and i love demon copperhead but i i just felt like she was able to be fully herself and like fully an advocate for a region and i just appreciate her so much for that um but i also appreciate it falling on listening ears and that's something that I think we should all strive to do better. And what was something we can learn from Ezra Klein in this is if we can all just try to be a little bit more like Ezra Klein in this interview, just allowing for the conversation to happen and to for it to be something that we hear and yeah. appreciate. I completely agree. And I and I think like what you said is is absolutely the truth. I mean, I, I enjoyed it more than Demer Copperhead in, in a sense. Like, I, mean, I, I don't want to say more. That's Maybe that's not the best way to put it. But it's different. I, it's totally different. It's just like... It's a yeah. different voice with this similar message. Yeah. And I think because she did a good job of like... of The balance that we, I think, have tried to strike and at times have nailed it, at times have not nailed it on this show of like being able to show the beauty of a place while also addressing the complexities of it and how some parts of it aren't yeah. beautiful and, and the way that people talk and react and 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 are so um much love for barbara kingsolver she's an, a phenomenal uh uh author and person i credit my ap english teacher in high school dr rebecca daniel with getting me interested in her because she had us read the poisonwood bible and so um i'm a big fan of barbara kingsolver and maybe we'll have her on the show one day yeah we're gonna gonna try <laughs>